the step up in basis. It's a wonderful thing, and I'm about to talk about it in this, the 72nd episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, Portfolio Withdrawal Strategies, Annuities, Estate Planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you as always for listening. Welcome to episode 72 of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Today, I'm going to talk about the step up in basis. You may be saying, what is that? Don't worry, I'm going to get to it. 72, uh, while, while we're on the topic. Um, this one stuck out to me. I don't know why. Well, I guess I do know why. 72 used to be the age at which required minimum distributions were started or, or needed to be taken. 72 is also uh, coincidentally the same number as code 72T or section 72T of the tax code, which has retirement planning implications because that is the ability to take substantially equal, substantially equal periodic payments, which is a way to circumvent the 10% penalty you may otherwise have to pay on taking money out of pre-tax accounts before age 59 and a half. So anyway, so I just thought I'd get a little nerdy here. 72 does have some retirement planning uh, implications coincidentally to it. So that's that. All right. Quiet down. Move on, Andy. Uh, so step up in basis. So what is it? Uh, this, this is an interesting one. This came up, this topic. Uh, on last week's episode, I talked about the capital gain exclusion on selling your house, your primary residence. And that came up because of a call I received randomly from, from someone who had a real life question about that and, and his mother's house, his, his elderly mother's house. So last week's episode uh, was, was all about the capital gain exclusion. As a follow on, also prompted by my, my call with that fellow a few weeks ago, I thought it'd be good to discuss step up in basis for this week's episode because it, it, it's all related and ties into the call I had with that gentleman a few weeks back. So that's going to be today. Again, I will get to it. You may be wondering, what is it? I'll get there. I swear. Uh, I'm not just trying to tease you for, for the fun of it. Uh, but before we get started, uh, I want to give a mention to my, my folks, my friends at Boomer Benefits. As you all likely know at this point, I'm in a limited engagement uh, sponsorship arrangement with them. They are helping to support this podcast for, uh, for a while. So Boomer Benefits, they have a really good Facebook group. It's, it's a Medicare agency, Boomer Benefits. They sell Medicare policies, supplements, Advantage Plan, et cetera. Uh, they have a, a fantabulous Facebook group. Anyone who knows me and knows the retirement planning education brand, if you will, uh, knows about the Facebook group, which used to be called Taxes and Retirement, now called Retirement Planning Education. There's a lot of good stuff on Facebook, if you know where to find it. There's also a lot of garbage, a lot of political nonsense, a lot of rabble-rousing, a lot of fights and name calling and just uh, ignorant people doing ignorant things. But if you go to the right spots, Facebook's a, a phenomenal place to learn, get answers, find community, support, help, et cetera. Uh, Medicare Q&A with Boomer Benefits is a Facebook group run by Boomer Benefits. They have staff whose job it is to, to administer the group, to you know approve and weed out, uh, approve new members and help weed out fake members, bot members, spam members to answer questions as, as people post them. I think they more or less, I don't want to call it 24 hour staffing, but more or less around the clock, there's someone, a Boomer Benefits employee who, who's the, whose job it is to, to you know, man the phones or uh, I don't know, not the phones, but the, the group and answer questions or you know, refer to others. And, and they and I, their group and, I, and my group, Retirement Planning Education, ha have a nice thing where anytime something like tax related or financial planning related comes up that's not Medicare specific, they'll refer 
you know, within their group to, to my Facebook group and vice versa. Anytime there's Medicare stuff, um, especially the hairier stuff that that isn't plain vanilla, things that, that I easily know the answer to, I, I will refer to the Medicare Q&A of Boomer Benefits group. So tremendously valuable. Anyone who's interested in learning more about Medicare, whether you're on Medicare, soon to be on Medicare, or just want to learn about it, definitely uh, get yourself on Facebook if you're not there already and join the Medicare Q&A with Boomer Benefits group to which I will uh, share a link in the notes of this video. All right, side right. Moving on, step up in basis. What is it? Well, first, let's talk about what, what basis is. Basis is a fancy tax term, which in effect just means the, the, the price you paid for something, but there's more to it than that. So it, it's the, it does start with the original price you paid, but you can add related costs. So if there are costs associated with that initial purchase, you can add that to your basis. For example, you bought shares of stock 30 years ago for $100 was the total price, but you paid a $20 commission, your basis would be $120. Not just the original $100 cost of the stock itself, but the $20 you had to pay in trading commissions to buy it. So $120 is your original basis or cost from a tax perspective. Pretty simple. When it comes to other things like, like buying a house, you also have the same concept of basis. It's the original price you paid, Plus, you can add on majority of the costs, the original closing costs, like title search fees, uh, legal fee. You know, you had a lawyer represent you for a thousand bucks or whatever. The recording fees, you know, the nickel and dime fees that the town hits you with to record that you're now the rightful owner of the property. You know, all, all that stuff adds to your original cost. So it's not just the sticker price of the house, but a lot of those closing costs as well. That's all part of your quote unquote basis. You can also, in the case of a house, you can add to it improvements you've made along the way. So you bought a house 30 years ago for 100,000 bucks. You paid, just making this number up, $5,000 in uh, you know, applicable closing costs. So now your basis is 105. But along the way, you redid your kitchen for 20 grand. So add 20 grand to it. Now your basis is $125,000. Let's say you, you added a deck for 10 grand. Your adjusted basis or your revised basis is now $135,000. So when it comes to a house, improvements you made add to the basis of it. Repairs do not. Uh, you know, a rock kicks up from a lawnmower and breaks your screen on the window, you know, costs you 50 bucks to replace the screen. That's not an improvement. The IRS delineates repairs versus improvements. Repairs are just things that bring your, your property back to the state it was before the repair is necessary. Improvements actually make, you know, the value better. It, 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 I'm trying to not define a term with itself, but it improves adds value to the house, not just brings it back to what it was. So anyway, so, so that's basis. Again, basis is just cost plus in the case of a house, you know, the value of improvements, plus you can add to it, um, you know, closing or transaction fees you had to pay to acquire it in the first place. So why does it matter this concept of basis? Well, when you sell something, uh, you may have a gain on it. If you sell it for more than what your basis or adjusted basis is, you're going to have a gain. And that gain is potentially taxable. So that's why you need to know what the basis is. Now, not to get too far off in the weeds here, but the gain is the sales price that you get for selling it minus your adjusted basis. Again, adjusted basis in the case of a house was the original purchase price plus you know, most of the closing costs to buy it, uh, plus any improvements you made along the way. So that's your gain, but we're not done yet. You can, you can strip out from the gain a lot of the, the costs associated with selling it. So in the case of a house, you have to pay 5% realtor commission generally. Let's say you sell your house for 500,000 bucks, but you pay 5% realtor commission. 
that's now 25 grand in realtor commissions you get uh, you know stripped off the top from from your sale proceeds so now your your sort of net sale price is only $475,000 so that's now the net sales price you use to compare to your adjusted basis and figuring out how much potential gain that might be taxable you now have so anyway, so that's why basis matters because it, it determines the taxability of the gain, if any, when you, when you sell that that thing, whether it's a stock or a house or whatever it may be. Now, this concept of basis and gains only really matters for what's called non-qualified assets. So what's non-qualified? Well, let me answer that by, by saying what a qualified asset is. A qualified asset is anything owned inside what's what the IRS calls a qualified account, like a traditional IRA an individual retirement arrangement or a Roth IRA or an HSA, a health savings account. These are things that there's no tax implications to sell something within them. You're only taxed on money, if at all, when you eventually take money out of that account. So from a tax perspective, what happens inside the account, the buying and selling and gains and losses doesn't, doesn't matter. It's just when you take money out of these qualified accounts that they may then be taxable. So, so non-qualified simply means you own something not in one of those qualified accounts. In the investment world, a non-qualified account and non-qualified ownership would be owning something in a normal brokerage account, your know, regular brokerage account. That's non-qualified. Uh, house, when you buy a house, you know, you, you just buy it straight up in your name, or maybe you're married, you, buy, you and your spouse buy it jointly. That's a non-qualified asset. You know, it was not purchased inside an IRA or a Roth IRA or an HSA. Even if you have a trust, you have a, you know, a simple living slash revocable trust that you use to buy your house. That's still a non-qualified asset. Uh, so in this case, you know, basis does matter, as you'll see, uh, because if and when you, you go to sell it, you may have a gain if you sell it for more than your uh, basis or adjusted basis in, in that property, in that house, in that stock, in that whatever it is. So it's not just, you know, in the case of brokerage accounts, it would be like stocks, mutual funds, bonds then basis matters. You may have a gain when you sell something at a, a taxable gain when you sell something for more and you paid for it. House, as, as I touched on, whether you own it outright in your name or through a trust that's non-qualified or even like collectibles, you know, cars, not that cars for the most part only go down in value, not up. So when you do sell a car, you're almost certainly not gonna have a gain on it. Although the last couple of years, the pandemic was, was, was crazy times. Uh, or maybe like antiques or, you know, classic cars or things you fix up and sell, you, you could have a gain, but generally speaking, cars are depreciable assets. They, they go down in value, not up, uh, collectibles, maybe, you know, you own collectibles, whether it's coins or stamps or, uh, art, that's all stuff that if you sell it for more than you buy it for, assuming you own it in a quote unquote, non-qualified world, you know, not an IRA, not an HSA, whatever, um, there, there's, uh, you know, you, you may have some some taxable gain. Quick side note: you actually can't own collectibles in IRAs, so that was a bad example, I guess. Um, it's it's one of the two things explicitly prohibited from being owned in an IRA is collectibles and life insurance. So bad example: you, you can't own art, for example, in an IRA. But I don't know. Anyway, moving on. Um, so now, when you, I didn't outright say this, but I kind of implied it. If you own a non-qualified asset, such as a stock, such as a house and it's appreciated in value, it's gone up in value from, from when you bought it, and you sell it while you're alive, there will be a gain. Now, whether or not that gain is taxable, that depends. As I went through in, in painstaking detail in last week's episode, episode 71, I talked about the capital gain exclusion on selling your primary residence. So if it's a house, you know your, your main house that you lived in for uh, at least two out of the last five years, there's more to it than that. Check out last week's episode if you want all the gory details, but suffice it to say, 
Uh, if you live there long enough and you sell your primary residence, you, you can exclude up to either $250,000 if you're single or $500,000 if you're married and own the house jointly. Um, you can exclude that much gain from being taxable upon selling a primary residence. Other things, selling stocks, bonds, mutual funds, selling collectibles, selling cars, uh, there's rarely, if ever, an exclusion to the gain. I don't want to say never because there, there could be something I'm not thinking of off the top of my head. But generally speaking, gains on anything other than a house will be uh, taxable income. That There's not any sort of exclusion to it. Again, generally, there, there could be oddball exceptions, but let's just for now pretend pretend there's not. So that, that's when you sell something during life at a gain. You have, you'll have to pay tax on that gain. Uh, or if you gift something during life, so for example, you're alive, you've owned stock for 30 years, you bought it for dirt cheap, now it's not dirt cheap, you know, and let's assume there's a $100,000 unrealized gain on it, such that if you do sell it while you're alive, you have a $100,000 taxable gain added to your tax return that year. So you may be like, all right, I'll just give it to my kid, right? He, he, he or she... Uh, I'll give it to them. The gain will disappear and, and all is good, right? Well, no, unfortunately, when you gift appreciated assets, like in this case, a stock you bought for a few bucks, it's now worth a hundred thousand. You, you give it to your child, you give it to your cousin, you give it to your uncle, you give it to whoever, it doesn't matter. Uh, unless it's a charity, charities don't pay tax. Um, you give it to someone that gain, that unrealized gain of a hundred thousand dollars ish doesn't just disappear. It, it just simply transfers over to the recipient of the gift. So if and when the gift uh, receiver eventually sells it, he or she is going to have to pay gain, uh, pay tax on that $100,000 gain that you used to have. So, so gifting appreciated things doesn't, doesn't get rid of the gain. Again, unless you're giving it to a charity, then it's not a gift, it's a donation. In that case, you can uh, wash your hands clean of that gain because charities don't pay tax. You gift them appreciated securities. They turn around and sell it. No tax to them. There's no tax to you because you got rid of it, right? You don't longer have it. Um, so that, that's one way to deal with, uh, getting rid of highly appreciated things you no longer want or need and you're charitably inclined in the first place. But anyway, uh, not, not to get off on a sidebar about charities. This is more about, uh, you know, selling something, actually realizing the gain. So point is you, you can't just gift, um, appreciated things to, to other people. Um, well, you can, but the, the unrealized gain doesn't go away. You're just simply giving it to them to deal with the tax burden when, if, and when they sell it. So here's where the concept of step up in basis comes into play. If you own an appreciated asset, again, in the non-qualified world, not an IRA, not in a Roth IRA, not an HSA, et cetera, but regular brokerage account, or you own your house straight up or whatever, um, you sell it during your life at a gain, you may have to pay tax on it. If you die still owning that stock, that house, whatever it is, and you leave it to your kids or your friends or your you know, other relatives or whomever, then the unrealized gain that you had in this property while you were owning it, while you had it during life, magically disappears. It gets the basis gets stepped up. What does that mean? So let, let's walk through a quick example here. And this, this again, this example came up after my conversation with that, that fellow in his mom's house. I'm making up the numbers here to make them uh, a little cleaner and, and easier to discuss. I, I know I should never really talk numbers and math examples in a, in a podcast format because it's hard to follow, but I'm going to try to keep this as simple as I can. So uh, let's walk through an example. A parent bought a house decades ago for $100,000. Don't worry about how they owned it, whatever. Just assume the basis, you know, their basis at this point is $100,000. Uh, 
it's currently worth seven hundred thousand dollars because you know house went up a lot over the last few decades. If the parent were to sell the house, there's going to be a while they're alive, there's going to be a six hundred thousand dollar gain. Again, it's a seven hundred thousand dollar current value. Their basis, they paid a hundred grand for it. Assume there's no other costs or other stuff to mess up basis. It's just a hundred grand. So there's a six hundred thousand dollar gain if they sell it. Now some of that gain will be exempt because of the capital gain exclusion on primary residence. Like I said, two hundred fifty grand if you're single, five hundred grand if you're married. But either way, both of those are less than 600 grand. So the parent will have at least some uh, taxable gain on the sale of this house. They then uh, want to leave, you know, they sell the house, they convert it to cash, well, not convert, but liquidate it to cash. They pay tax on some of the gain to give whatever ta- uh, whatever cash is left to, to their kids. And they think they did a good thing. The alternative is if the parent dies owning the house, and the kids inherit the house, the kids then sell the house, the basis of the house gets stepped up to $700,000. Well, technically it gets stepped up to whatever value the house was on the parent's date of death. And let's assume that was $700,000. So whereas the parent had a $600,000 unrealized gain in this house while they were alive, once they die and that house now becomes the, the kids, the heirs, that $600,000 a gain magically disappears. The basis gets quote unquote stepped up in the hands of the heirs such that they inherit it. They get this house worth $700,000 and, and the kids, the, the heirs basis in it is 700,000. It's as if they paid $700,000 for it. If you want to think about it that way. So whatever the, the market value of the house was on the date of death of the original owner, the basis gets stepped up to that value in the hands of the heirs who inherit it. So $600,000 unrealized gain, magically gone, boom, done. So the kids now, they, they inherit this house worth 700 grand. They turn around and sell it tomorrow. Let's assume there's no transaction cost or whatever. They, they simply sell it 700 grand, boom, done, which was the exact price it was on the date that the, the, the parent died. There is zero taxable gain now to these kids. So they, they walk away with all 700 grand of cash from the sale of this house because that step up in basis made it such that there was zero gain that they had to realize and pay tax on on this house. Got it? That, that, that's a simple example of step up and basis. So so very powerful. So, so going back to this call I had with the gentleman, I already forget the details, but it was something along the lines of this. Um, and again, I'm making the numbers up, but he, he was in his 60s, I believe. His, his mother was in her 90s, not in the best of health, not, not, not imminently leaving this world, but not in the best of health. And, and the mom had a highly appreciated house that was worth about $700,000. And the mother was considering selling the house because she didn't need it. She's now in a, in a care facility. So she was going to sell it and in effect, give the cash to the kids ultimately because the, the kids were going to be the, the heirs. And the question to me was about the gain exclusion, uh, which I walked through with, with him and explained how it works. He wasn't aware of the step up and basis idea. So the mother would have had to pay a, a pretty chunky uh, taxable gain on the house because of how appreciated it was. And she was single. So she only qualified for the $250,000 of gain exclusion. So it would, so would have been, I forget the math, but a few hundred thousand dollars of taxable gain, which isn't cheap. You know, that's tens of thousands of dollars of tax the mom would have had to pay. Whereas if the mom continued to own the house and in effect took it to the grave for, for lack of a better word or a better term, that then there's no taxable gain on the house. The kids would inherit it sell it for whatever it's worth at the time because of the step up in basis all that unrealized gain the mother had would just magically disappear and and the kids don't pay any tax on that gain 
and yet they get the you know seven hundred thousand dollars of sale proceeds. So that that was like revolutionary to this person who wasn't aware of step up basis. It was like, oh man, this this could be big. This could save tens of thousands of dollars of tax. That's not that simple. You need to have some potentially difficult conversations with mom and other family members in this case. Like, hey, uh, you know, you're ninety something. You're not in the best health. Um, instead of selling it, how about you keep it? even though you don't really need it now, just for the sake of more tax efficient wealth transfer upon your passing. You don't know what passing is gonna be. You know, if someone's on the deathbed, it's it's slightly bit of an easier decision, but if someone, even their 90s, has potentially years left to live, does that person really wanna still own this house for multiple years just for the sake of trying to skirt around uh, capital gain taxes if they were to sell it? I don't know, so you know, it, it, it's not a simple answer, but. In this case, it was an impactful uh, thing to consider because of the amount of dollars at play with with the tax that the uh, mom would have had to pay if she were to sell it. So step up in basis, very important thing to, to be aware of if you have highly appreciated assets outside of qualified accounts. Again, so these are non-qualified assets. You own a regular bank account, regular brokerage account. You own your house. Um, you, you don't particularly want it or need it. And you're okay with holding on to it until you pass then you can definitely be uh, fairly tax efficient with how you end up giving this to whomever your ultimate heirs are. So that's that. Uh, now, now let's a couple other things to consider um, that I didn't, I didn't touch on in last week's episode because I didn't want to get too carried away with it. But when the step up in basis could be different when there's marriage involved. And here's what I mean by that. So let's start for an example uh, with an example. There's a couple who are married, they own their house jointly, and they live not in a community property state. There are, I think, nine states in the US that are called community property, which, uh, not to make this a legal ex uh, episode, but community property basically means each spouse, everything they own that is deemed community property, they have like undivided interest. When one spouse dies, the other spouse automatically gets it which on the surface sounds loosely similar to joint tenants with rights of survivorship, which is what many of you have probably heard of, especially those in non-community property states, which means spouses own things like a house jointly as joint tenants, it's called. When one spouse dies, the survivor automatically takes over full ownership of, of that property seamlessly and everything's good. Why does it matter? The difference between community property and, and non-community property? Well, because of the step up in basis. So here's let's walk through an example. So first we'll start in a non-community property state, which is the majority of the states in the U S a married couple originally bought a house for $100,000 uh, decades ago, and they bought it as joint tenants with rights of survivorship, which again means that each spouse owns a, an equal, you know, 50, 50 interest in the house. If when one spouse dies, the other one, the other joint tenant automatically gets uh, the deceased spouse's half such that the surviving spouse now owns a full 100% of it. So in this example, uh, they bought the house for 100 grand. As joint tenants with rights of survivor, each spouse, in effect, paid $50,000 for the house, right? A total basis, total cost of the house was 100 because they're joint tenants are each deemed to own 50-50. So therefore, each spouse's half of the original basis is $50,000. Good so far? All right. 10 years later, the house is worth, let's say, $300,000, uh, current market value. So again, because it's joint tenant, joint tenants, each spouse owns 50-50. So each spouse's half of the current value is now $150,000. Okay, 
Got it. Original basis is still 50,000 each, half of the 100,000 original price. Current value is now 300. So each spouse's share is worth 150,000 currently. Spouse A dies. And because it's joint tenants, spouse B inherits spouse A's half. Spouse A's half gets a full step up in basis, but just on that half. So what does that mean? Recall I said each spouse's half at the time of death was worth $150,000 because the current market value of the house was $300,000 and each spouse owns half. So when spouse A dies, spouse B inherits that half. That half gets stepped up to its half of the, of the market value of $150,000. Follow? This, this is really something that's better in a visual format, but I'm going with it. So stick with me. So now the spouse A half gets stepped up to a basis of $150,000 in the hands of spouse B who inherits it. Spouse B's original half that he or she bought however many years ago is still at a basis of only $50,000, the original half of the basis. So now spouse B's total basis in this house is spouse B's original $50,000 basis plus a stepped up half that spouse B inherited from spouse A where that stepped up half again got stepped up to $150,000. So in total, spouse B's adjusted basis is now $200,000 in this, in this house that spouse B fully owns. Got it? Again, $50,000 for spouse B's original half of the basis plus the stepped up $150,000 of what spouse B inherited upon spouse A's passing uh, from spouse A. So if, if spouse B, who now fully owns a house, were to sell the house at its $300,000 current market value, there's going to be $100,000 again. Because again, spouse B's basis is now $200,000, as we just discussed. Got it? So again, if you sell the house for $300,000, $100,000 gain because spouse B, the survivor, spouse B's, gain, uh, spouse B's basis is $200,000 at this point. Or if spouse B were to uh, own this house until he or she died and passed it on to his or her kids, then there'd be a full step up in basis to whatever the house was valued at the time of spouse B's death. Let's uh, just assume it's still 300 grand at the time. So that, that $100,000 of unrealized gain that spouse B had while he or she was still alive goes away because of step up in basis if and when spouse, B's, spouse B dies and leaves the house to uh, to the heirs at whatever its value is at the time. All right, so that's a non-community property state, and that's how the, the basis thing works when there's spouses or joint tenants that, that own the property equally. What if it's a community property state? So uh, for example, Texas, uh, California, um, Arizona, New Mexico, I think Texas as well, I should know this, Texas, uh, yeah, Texas I believe is as well. Uh, community property state, Some, let's go through the same example. Two spouses bought a house, while ago for $100,000 in total. But because it's a community property state, they, they bought it with community property money, you know, joint money. Um, they own this house as community property. Here, here's what happens when, when one spouse dies in this case. When spouse A dies, spouse B now rightfully owns the entirety of the house. So spouse B in effect gets spouse A's half, no different than joint tenants so far. The big difference is how stepped up in basis works. Now, when one spouse dies in community property state, the community property, in this case, the house, gets fully stepped up to its full market value of $300,000. So spouse B now, spouse B's basis in this house upon spouse A's death 
is the full stepped up $300,000. You don't have to do any of this nonsense like we did before where you can only step up half of the basis because they were joint tenants. No, with community property, it's a full step up to the market value of the property uh, as of the date of the one spouse's death. So uh, clearly beneficial. Now you can't pick and choose this. I mean, you either live in a community property state or you don't. It's not like here in New Jersey, you, you can't make something community property. New Jersey simply doesn't recognize community property. So it's not, not even possible. But if you are in a community property state and own the house as community property, this is what would happen. You get the full step up basis. So back to this example, um, spouse A dies, spouse B inherits it. Spouse B were to turn around and sell the house for its $300,000 market value. There'd be zero gain unlike the other example where there's a hundred thousand dollar gain right because community property full step up uh, and same thing if and when spouse b uh, dies still owning the house the house will then pass on to whomever the heirs are and uh, it, it'll be stepped up to whatever value it is at the time whether it's 300 or something more or whatever so that that doesn't uh, function any differently um that's that fairly short for, for me. Uh, just, just to recap, if you have appreciated assets in a non-qualified type account, meaning not an IRA, not a Roth IRA, not a 401k, not a HSA, not a 403b, you just own it in a normal brokerage account, normal bank account, or you own your house, just, you know, you own it just normally or through a trust even, uh, appreciated assets you don't particularly want or need, you can take them to the grave uh, whenever you pass them on to whomever the heirs are, you'll get a step up in basis. Well, the heirs will, I should say, get a step up in basis such that any unrealized gain that you had in your hands while you owned the thing during your life, that all just magically disappears um, for the benefit of, of the heirs. The only one who loses out is the IRS, I suppose. So um, really good thing to keep in mind. I'm just realizing now, uh, this episode's done, but I'll just refer for a moment here. Normally, I record these in my basement, in, in my dark and dungeonous basement where uh, it's a closed room. There's not a lot of other sound going on today. I don't quite know why, but the, the mood struck me. I'm recording this in my office at work, and there's um, a lot of noise outside with like trucks driving by, and, and there's a leaf blower before and something else. So anyway, I don't know if you all can pick that up. I have a good microphone that I like to think only picks up the stuff that's close to it, like, like my mouth. But um, anyway, if you do hear background noise... Uh, apologies. Hopefully it's not too distracting, but normally I will uh, continue to record this in my basement where the sound is better. But anyway, that's it. Uh, thank you as always for listening. If you do like this podcast, I would greatly, greatly appreciate you taking a moment to leave a review, ideally on Apple, uh, on Apple Podcasts if you can. If not there, whatever other podcast listening platform you use would be good. That, that would uh, make me happy. Appreciate it very much. And if you haven't already, check out retirementplanningeducation.com where you can find not only this podcast, but link to the Facebook group by the same name, link to the YouTube channel by the same name with the direct feed of those YouTube videos. Although I've been really lazy getting new videos out. I haven't done one in months. It's a lot of work. Uh, anyway, what's there is gold, but uh, there's, there's, there's not uh, fresh stuff there routinely. Maybe, maybe I'll get around to doing that one day. Maybe I won't. Who knows? Um, and also a bunch of free downloads, checklists, flowcharts, guides. Uh, what else? I'm drawing a blank. Other stuff. Tax return checklist. Although at this point, tax return should be done unless you got an extension. Uh, so anyway, check that out. Retirementplanningeducation.com. And I'm done. I will stop now. Thank you as always for listening. I will see you next time. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, 
first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you.